Hello, everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of Roundhouse Crosstalk, a podcast hosted by the California State Railroad Museum. In this week's episode, we sit down with Tony Reavy, a friend of the podcast who's been on a couple of times now, to discuss his new book about Phil Hastings and railroad photography, called The Railroad Photography of Phil Hastings. Phil Hastings' career is something that I think many of our listeners and other railroad enthusiasts can relate to. This is somebody who may not have had a career in railroading, but nevertheless helped make his mark in railroad photography. His inclusion of landscapes, train crews, and other parts of railroading that was previously excluded from railroad photography helped shape the next generation of railroad photography. So without further ado, let's get into the show. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Roundhouse Crosstalk, a podcast hosted by the California State Railroad Museum. Uh, today, I'm sitting here with Tony Reavy, an author of a new upcoming book about a couple of different, or about uh, Phil Hastings, a railroad photographer. Um, thank you for coming back on the podcast. This is the third time that you've been on Roundhouse Crosstalk uh, today. Um, so thank you for joining us. Um, so the last time we, last two times we had you on, uh, the first one was talking about railroad photographers, um, Lucius Beebe and Charles Clegg. And then the yes. most recent one was on um, ghost stories on the railroad. Uh, for this one, yes. we're getting back into the railroad photography um, uh, industry here, looking specifically at Phil Hastings. Uh, can you start by giving us an audience a brief bio about who Phil Hastings is and how you got interested in his work? Sure, and thank you. Uh, of the photographers I've written about, Phil Hastings is probably the hardest to research because he was not a celebrity and did not make his living as a photographer. He was born in the mid-1920s and grew up in a small town in Vermont called Bradford. It's not the Vermont of Rutland and uh, Burlington, the big cities, and they're not very big. It's completely on the other side of the state along the uh, border with New Hampshire. Uh, he was uh, uh, of the age, like my father was, where he needed to serve in World War II. Uh, he went in the army for a couple of years and uh, uh, went to college, started out thinking he wanted to be an engineer and work for the railroad, but he soon got interested in becoming a medical doctor. And he went to the University of Vermont in his home state, got his MD uh, in 1950, and he decided that he wanted to take a fairly long path and be a psychiatrist. So um, he um, spent the 50s professionally um, serving in, in the army as an army doctor, uh, working for the uh, what we now call the VA, the Veterans Administration. Um, and he um, finally completed all of his residency and so on in in about 1959 and became a um, psychiatrist and moved to the Midwest and um, very, very far from Vermont where he had spent almost his entire life. And he lived the rest of his life uh, in Iowa and he um, died fairly young, especially by today's standards. In fact, he died at the almost exactly the same age I am right now, just before he turned 62 uh, of uh, colon cancer. So uh, that's another thing about Phil Hastings. He, um, he didn't, um, he didn't 
really have any retirement years to uh, spend full time on his photography like like he had hoped. On on the photography side of things, uh, he started taking pictures at a very young age. He he was given this was during the depression when he was a child, and he was given a um, a camera by a real fan who admired his work, a fairly decent camera. And uh, after um, going through the military and going to uh, medical school, while he was in medical school, he made money on the side as a photographer, um, shooting things like weddings, but he also took many railroad photos. And his first uh, publication was in Trains Magazine in 1947 an article about a Vermont short line. What uh, led to Phil Hastings' um, notability in the real enthusiast community was mostly his work with a trains editor named David P. Morgan. David P. Morgan was a long-term editor of trains, just like my recently departed friend Jim Wren was. And, um, they, during the mid-1950s, they obviously realized that steam on, it was the end of what we call the age of steam on American railroads, and they spent uh, three or four years together uh, traveling across the country and documenting that for Trains Magazine, and that resulted in uh, a, a number of articles for trains, and then much later, 20 years later, in in a book called the Mohawk that refused to abdicate. Uh, Phil Hastings had five children. So in the years after he first moved to Iowa, he didn't, he stopped doing as much work, but in the late 1960s, he started doing work on vanishing passenger trains. He, he also saw that uh, passenger trains, at least as they were known then, uh, their time was also ending, and he documented a number of uh, passenger trains in the late 60s. That work was finally um, documented in, in a small, small magazine uh, in the late 1970s. And then just as Phil Hastings started to receive a number of awards uh, and uh, recognition, uh, he passed away at the age of about 62 in 1987. Um, the other thing he did that would be of interest to real fans listening is he had a lot to do with one of our large railroad museums in the United States, the Mid-Continent Railway Museum in Wisconsin, which uh, sounds really far away, but it's actually not that far from where Phil Hastings lived in Iowa. And uh, so he spent a lot of time as a volunteer and even as a Board, volunteer board member with them. So that's a snapshot of Phil Hastings and, and his career. His He's also really, um, his fate and, and um, is really intertwined with two other folks. One is the editor and writer I mentioned, David P. Morgan. And then he was very close friends with another friend of mine, Jim Shaughnessy, who also just passed away recently. Uh, who was a very noted railroad photographer as well. And also, unlike Phil Hastings, who did not really do much writing, uh, Jim Shaughnessy wrote several really noted railroad books. 
so that's a snapshot of Phil Hastings and his life. Um, and one thing that your book mentions is that his work is influenced by the photojournalistic movement. Yes. Uh, so can you briefly describe what that movement was and how it connects to Hastings and his work? Yeah. Uh, so Hastings didn't talk much about his influences, neither did another photographer I've written about, Owenston Link. Uh, but he, um, David P. Morgan said that he was influenced by the photojournalists and from his work, I, I'm sure that Hastings was as well. That was a movement that came about when magazines and newspapers, when it became lower cost to include images in print materials, which would be circa say about 1930, uh, you started to see um, articles being accompanied by photos, especially newspapers and newspaper readers came to uh, expect this. And so you, if you've watched any 30 movies, you know, the the uh, crowd of reporters and photographers um, interviewing people um, and using press cameras, uh, which are mostly graphic cameras with, you know, the big square camera with the flash bulb popping off in front of, uh, uh, you know, say the characters and it happened one night or something. Um, that um, it was a genre where you documented news and world events with photography as well as with writing. Um, it's usually you think of this uh, as best typified by the um, by the pictorial magazines of the time, uh, which uh, I'm dating myself because I certainly remember reading Life magazine, but Life magazine was one of the best known. Uh, Look was kind of an also ran. Uh, Life was done by the same company that did Time magazine and Fortune, and both of those used a number of photos, but but Life and Look were uh, focused, pardon the pun, focused on photos, and so they really typify this. Another thing that happened was during the Depression, uh, it, the government did a number of economic stimulation things. And one of them was having photographers who documented particularly rural America. They were called the Farm Security Administration photographers. And um, Walker Evans, who's one of, certainly one of the greatest photographers of the 20th century was one of those. And they worked in, I'd say a very advanced photojournalistic style and were really excellent at telling stories with photos and sequences of photos. Uh, that's another thing about photojournalism is that when you had these venues that were really heavy on photography, you would do uh, portfolios uh, that told a extended story using photos as well as a minor amount of narrative and the captions. And Phil Hastings was, his photos, I think it's fair to say, go beyond um, just shots of engines and so on to tell a story about the railroad in the in its landscape. And that's that's why I call him uh, a follower of the photojournalistic movement in the book. And then so thinking about Hastings as not a professional, like full-time main employment railroad photographer. Right. Um, since since he, you know, is balancing this with um, his work. 
um, you said as a psychiatrist, correct? Correct. Correct. And before that, medical student and medical resident. Yeah. So this is this is a busy guy, but he's still kind of going out. He was a busy guy. <laughs> he was a busy guy. Um, so I wonder then. So it sounds like he has just a really big love for trains and photography. He's doing this, you know, as as um, kind of a full time hobby. Um, where yeah. does that sort of love for trains come from? Does he have an early life experience with trains? Yes. So it definitely comes as as this as happens with many folks who are interested, even obsessed in even obsessed with trains. It comes from his childhood. Uh, he grew up in Bradford, Vermont, uh, right along what at the time was a railroad main line, um, mostly used by the Boston and Maine, uh, that ran basically from uh, the Canadian border uh, down um, the Connecticut River uh, to meet the Boston and Maine's east-west main line, which went from Boston to um, near Troy, New York, uh, just south of uh, the Massachusetts-Vermont border. So there was a railroad station in town that he, he could see the railroad track from his house. His father was very interested in trains, he became friends. And this is a typical story from back when there were still staffed railroad stations in the U.S. in almost every town. He became friends with the station agent and in Bradford and, you know, did errands around the depot, started taking photos there, became interested in the possibility of a railroad career. But as I said, during college, he decided to switch to medicine. So it's it's definitely a childhood interest that uh, lived on in him for his entire life. For sure. Um, and you mentioned sort of in, in the beginning here that towards the end of his life he started getting lots of recognition um, for his mm -hmm. work he started to kind of stand out um, what made his photography different from that of his contemporaries so he his as I said his first article came out in 1947 uh, and I'm just thinking I this is the first time I thought of this that's the same year that uh, you mentioned that I had written about Lucius Beebe and Charles Clegg that's the same year that what I consider their best book, uh, Mixed Train Daily, came out. And Charles Clegg, uh, the, uh, one of the photographers in the Lucius B.B. Charles Clegg couple, um, and um, Phil Hastings had something in common, and that is that they, well, let, let me back up with the, the, first of all, it was very hard to take photos of moving trains until fast shutter speeds came about. That would be, generally speaking, for people to buy in the 1930s. And so what you saw, the most popular genre of railroad photography uh, in the first third, say, and beyond, and, and even beyond of our century was uh, roster shots, where people took post uh, shots of locomotives just sitting there and accumulated as many different locomotives as they could. Then Lucius Beebe, who published the first railroad photo book in 1938, High Iron, he, he stepped back and with the kind of equipment that he could buy, he was a very wealthy man. He was able to uh, take action shots of locomotives with his equipment and he 
popularized. It had been done for quite a while before that, but he really popularized uh, a shot called the wedge shot or the three-quarter shot. Uh, you would know it if you saw it. It's basically the photographers looking almost straight on it, uh, a locomotive making smoke with a train trailing it. and But kind of from an angle, that's what's called a three-quarter shot. And the many of the first say three of Beebe's books were mostly populated with shots like that and then what you under the influence of the photojournalism movement what you saw was several photographers uh, it, I think it's very fair to say that Phil Hastings was one of the earliest ones stepping back to take I'm going to call them more creative photos of the railroad scene you know photos of uh, that profiled workers those go back to the work of a photographer named Lewis Hine, um, photos of station environments, photos of the interiors of stations, um, just stepping back and looking at the environment of railroading and not just the engines. Um, and the other thing that happened at about that time was you started to have equipment that with some special add-ons could do night photography. And so you also started to see uh, railroad night photography, even photography of locomotives that were moving, taken at night. You kind of brought it up in, in that um, last answer where you talked about him um, doing more work at night as well yes. as incorporating um, folks that were working on the railroad in different settings like that. Um, but does he have any like like iconic sort of settings and railroad um, favorites, I guess, that would be associated with him? Well, so uh, on the one hand, and this is this is for two reasons. One is because of his travels with Trains Magazine, which were paid for by the publisher Kalmbach Publishing, he ranged all across the country with uh, with the editor David P. Morgan, and then also he was assigned at a number of different places while he was in the military, while he was doing residency, while he was working uh, for the VA. And so he also moved quite a bit with his with his growing family. So he shot all across the country, and you could uh, make you could do a book of his Western photography easily. But I, as I look at the images, and I'm not the only one who's thought this, I, I think his photos of New England and of Canada, which mu much of Eastern Canada reminds me very much of New England, and I think he had a special feeling uh, for New England and uh, Eastern Canada settings. And then also at that time, um, New England and perhaps the, the Deep South were large centers of what are called short line, small independent railroads. And I think it's fair to say that Phil Hastings also had a, a great feel for short lines in their rural environment. And I think that's probably both of those um, strengths of his work, I think, come from growing up in a small town, Bradford, Vermont, which was in New England and also was a small town surrounded by rural countryside. Another big portion of his career is that journey around the United States and Canada, sort of documenting the end of the steam era. Right. Uh, can you talk a little bit about how, about how that journey got started um, and what his experiences were like on that journey? Yeah, so um, 
I was uh, Hastings uh, correspondence as well as his photos are at your museum. By the way, I should recognize the California State Railroad Museum Library and Archives. This book would not have been possible without you uh, and the great assistance from the staff there. Uh, so Phil Hastings uh, photos and and papers are held by the museum and and curated excellently well. Um, one thing I didn't see much, I, I didn't get an answer to in his uh, correspondence is ex exactly how the first uh, trip with David P. Morgan arose. But um, what we know is that David P. Morgan and Phil Hastings formed a team uh, to travel around the US uh, they did this, I think, for four summers. Um, so he would clearly what he was doing, he was taking whatever vacation time he had off and he would he was basically spending it in uh, on a summer vacation for him, traveling around with David P. Morgan. Uh, David P. Morgan was interviewing, writing, taking notes and uh, and Phil Hastings was taking the photos. They generally traveled in David P. Morgan's car. And so this was work for David P. Morgan, but for Phil Hastings, it was an avocation. And so he must have been spending these, at this time, these four years or so, all of his vacation time on doing this. And they worked out itineraries well in advance. Uh, the, uh, the best noted itinerary I was able to find in the papers, Phil Hastings actually uh, clearly typed it up. So it, it looks like he had quite a bit of say in where they went. And their trips, because of their interests, um, David P. Morgan was really interested in what I'd call mainline railroading. Uh, they, they would visit a combination of short lines and uh, standard railroads. And, and so their, their work was trips that were spanned a fairly broad geography and also spanned different types of railroads. Although, you know, the US and they included Canada, not Mexico, but US and Canada. Those are such vast places, of course, that um, they didn't they didn't go all across the country each time. I mean, there was one early trip where they went to the Canada Maritimes, there was uh, one trip where they did a lot of the American South. Uh, there was uh, a trip where they uh, did a lot of the Midwest. Uh, there was a trip where they went as far as actually uh, Donner Pass, which is right near where you're sitting right now, Jake. So, um, but in the sum total of the trips, they really, uh, I'm trying to think of a place they really, really didn't hit. Um, they hit the Colorado railroads, um, they hit most of the country. And, and so it's, it's an incredible document of American railroading. Just they, they did this because they saw that steam was going away, but it, it, it also documented American railroading just as local train stations started to close, just as the network of passenger trains started to really decline. Um, all the all those changes that we've seen in the industry, they documented the way it was just as about they were as those changes were really starting. 
Do we have, um, so something working at the Railroad Museum that we see a lot um, when corresponding with people that either were around for the decline of the steam uh, era or, um, you know, know somebody that was or kind of have a familiarity with it is sort of like a, like a sadness about it, a nostalgia for that steam era past. Um, do we have, like, do they record what they were feeling while they were kind of documenting this process? Do we um, know if this was a, sort of a somber trip for them? They sure did. Uh, David, uh, both of them did. I mean, David P. Morgan did the writing and Phil Hastings did the photography. He didn't really, in these trips, he didn't do the writing, but um, he, they were both interviewed about this in several places afterwards and recorded a lot of their thoughts. I, I don't think, um, you know, I don't think you could say that these were somber trips. They they really enjoyed them uh, and they enjoyed documenting the end of steam. They both, um, David P. Morgan never said this, but Phil Hastings at the time said that he thought he would stop doing railroad photography when uh, the steam era ended. And many railroad photographers did do that. But he didn't. After uh, after a bit of a slowdown in his work, from say 1958 to 1967 or so, which I would suspect was because of his work and family obligations, um, rather than the end of steam, he started taking photos again. And um, you know, there he has a number of really good photos of the de early diesel area era, mostly taken in the late. 1960s, early 1970s. So he thought at the time that uh, the end of steam would mean the end of his photography, that he would no longer be interested, but that's not what actually happened. And, you know, every generation that's talked and written about railroading probably since the 50s has said, oh, now railroading is is really bland and not as interesting as it used to be. I mean, you you know, in my generation, I remember when most towns had an open station with a freight agent. Um, I remember a lot more branch lines than there are now. I remember when there are a lot more railroad companies. Now, I'm not talking about short lines, but major railroad companies than there are now. As you know, there are only six of them now. And um, I think it may be fair to say that railroading uh, on the major railroads is somewhat less visually interesting than it used to be, but uh, we also have seen a resurgence in railroad passenger service. I mean, there were maybe seven or eight cities that had commuter rail, and now I've lost count how many it is. There are a lot of, there are a lot more successful short lines than there used to be because of the devolution of branches from major railroads to smaller ones. So uh, I, I think I don't think it's entirely fair to say that the railroad scene is is uninteresting, uh, but you know every every generation seems to think that their their view of the railroad industry over the past say fifty or sixty years is less interesting than the last one. I'm not sure that's really true. I do think you have to be more clever in your in your images to be interesting than used to be the case because you know. Anybody who's seen a steam locomotive, I mean, they're just inherently interesting. And then open railroad stations with people gathered around and so on. That to me, that's just inherently interesting. So you have to, you have to uh, be 
more open and clever about your subjects than you used to be. Yeah, and I, I think that's that's probably true with just about any you know hobbyist situation, right? It's like mm -hmm. whatever was standard when you got into the hobby ends up usually being your sort of favorite, and then as it evolves away from that, you kind of look back fondly at the beginning. Like I even think of like um, like I'm really into basketball, um, the, the sport. So um, when I think of basketball, when I was first getting into the sport, which would have been the early to mid uh, 2000s, um, I think of that as like the best basketball. It's so much more interesting than what they're doing now and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, and that's even sort of a smaller change than sh shifting yeah. from, from seam to decent. Well, but, but it's still, I, I think it's just how it works, right? I will, I, I probably won't argue with you you there i'm in the 19 i'm in the 1983 class from nc state where i now work and so i remember being on what's called our brickyard and uh when the team came home in 1983 after winning the national championship <laughs> so that yeah that was that was really something um as were the championship uh win nights uh in chapel hill which is close by here too you know one other thing i'll say about railroad photography well a couple of things one is the, I think it's true that um, the people who the the people who run railroad nonprofits, especially volunteer ones, uh, are aging and are mostly white men and so on. Um, and we thought that was going to happen with railroad photography, but there's a really strong uh, and and much more diverse. Uh, generation of railroad photographers coming along. So that's that's one thing I'll say. I, I think a lot of them are encouraged by an entity called the Center for Railroad Photography and Art. And then the other thing is you're starting to see in railroad photography, uh, and again, the Center for Railroad Photography and Art does a lot of this or uh, produces the books that showcase it. You're seeing what you're also seeing perhaps in creative writing. You're seeing a real uh, Kind of post postmodern viewpoint that's really fragmenting into uh, so many different kinds of images. You know, close-ups of hardware associated with railroads, uh, shots that would have been unthinkable forty years ago, but now are quite common. Of you know, interesting abandoned railroad views of railroad tracks without trains. So um, people are really searching for creativity in, in uh, railroad subject photography. And I think that's true of a lot of photography in general. Um, and even with, um, you know, Photoshop, digital photography is now the principal medium. And so you see Photoshopping and so on. Although in railroad subject work, um, you know, unless it's there, unless there's a really recognized art photography intent, people don't like uh, images that are Photoshop to be different than what was really there. I think that's a fair statement too. Sure. But I think all this is means that, you know, railroad subject photography and photography of American um, in, you know, sort of industrial uh, archaeology and architecture is going to continue and and be just as interesting as it's ever been. Um, and so we've been talking about sort of the the progress of rail photography in general, but right. um, specifically looking at Phil Hastings here, uh, how did his work progress over the course of his career? Did you develop any like new techniques that, you know, you could distinguish easily between his early work 
and his later work, or was he pretty consistent throughout? So um, three things I'll say there. One is he was fairly consistent. He started with um, railroad subject images that were much broader and, and very creative for the time in the 1940s, and he pretty much stuck with that throughout his whole career. Uh, I, there are two areas that where he really developed, and, and one of them is well known, and the other one is not really known very well. So with the other thing he did, and it's not reflected in the book, I kept the book to black and white for a number of reasons, um, but he did, he started shooting color transparency for, film, color slide film, with, which with mostly thir a uh, 35 millimeter camera like people probably use now, except of course now they're digital, uh, in the early 1950s or so, I think he was probably using Kodachrome, which would, you know, the I'm old enough also to remember Kodachrome. It was a beautiful medium. It was really a great film. I mean, it's not made anymore. Um, and those slides, you have them, but really it doesn't seem that anyone look, has looked at them and used them in publications much. So we don't really, I did not look at that. I wanted to keep my publisher and I wanted to keep the book black and white. And that's, you know, since these color images haven't been seen much, it's the black and white images that have been influential. But they're there and, and you know, it would be great for someone to look at them and see what his color work was like. And then the other thing where his technique definitely developed and, and uh, where he really influenced others was his night photography. And he was, I think it's a fair statement that he, amongst both professional and avocational railroad subject photographers, he was really, I think you can call him the innovator there. I mean, his work came before O. Winston Link. O. Winston Link didn't claim that he wasn't influenced by anyone, but, you know, Phil Hastings had a number of photos like that published before Phil, before O. Winston Link started doing his Norfolk and Western images. And um, he also, uh, he even said he taught Jim Shaughnessy how to do railroad night photography. I'm not sure if that's 100% correct, but, you know, he was a big influence on Jim Shaughnessy and and Link Shaughnessy and Hastings have been the influences on night railroad and on railroad photographers who did night work who came after them. And, you know, it was when you were using film, this was a really hard thing to do. I mean, in the last, say, 10 years or so, we now have uh, digital cameras that have um, uh, I guess you, what's the, you know, they, they're so sensitive that you can do night work fairly easily now. I think that's a fair statement. But with film, you know, it, and people still do it with film, it is not easy. This is not an easy thing to do. So he was really an innovator there and really an influence on others. Um, so, so this is now the, at least the second book that you've done on railroad photographers in general. Um, do you have a special interest in railroad photography? Is there a reason that like photography kind of keeps drawing you back in? Well, it's the it's 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 the fourth actually. Um, so, a Winston Link, uh, Jack Delano, 
Lucy's Beebe and Charles Clegg and Phil Hastings. It's the second one I've done with your museum and and this this book and the book on Beebe and Clegg would not exist without the California State Railroad Museum. So thank you for that. Um, so what it it railroad photography books is is kind of what I, I'd call in uh, in the parlance of the publishing industry, my platform. I mean, um, it's it's a book that I seem to be able to get placed, and I enjoy doing them. So um, I've had a I've had a plan to bring certain photographers that hadn't been profiled, especially with something about their biography, um, to get books about them done so that they're documented and there for, you know, once a book is done, it's a little bit different than a magazine or certainly an online blog or something. Once a book is done uh, about a photographer or a writer, um, you know, it's there for others to look back at. And, you know, as you look back, certain books um, like Mixed Train Daily, like a, a Time of Trains by David Plowden, like Steam, Steel and Stars by Oak Winston Link, are books that, you know, and the, the Mohawk that refused to abdicate, the Phil Hastings, um, David P. Morgan book, um, they're books that people continue to look back at uh, to learn about these photographers and, and be influenced by them. And so I, I hope that the books I've done, uh, at least, you know, at least one of them may become a standard work like that. I, I think, I think that, um, you could probably say that about now about my Winston Link book, which is called Life Along the Line. It it's really the first one that had a biography of him, and um, so I, I I'm very proud of that one and how it documents uh, Winston Link. So I keep I'm I'm interested in railroads. I'm interested in photography, um, and so I've had a program to. to highlight certain photographers. I'm almost done with the program I had in mind. Um, I have one more book in mind that would look a lot like these other four. And, um, you know, I, I'm hoping, unlike Phil Hastings, I'm hoping that uh, once I pass retirement age, I can keep writing. And, and you know, when I'm, I also uh, have a, a family and a full-time job, just like Phil Hastings did. This is a, a kind of a, primary avocation for me. And so uh, I plan to do at least one more, at least one long form nonfiction book after I retire. I just, I really, I certainly understand Phil Hastings because uh, I, and this was true of Jack Delano too, not true of Owenson Link or Lucius Beebe because they made a profession of being a photographer and or being a photographer and writer. But um, I really understand Phil Hastings and Jack Delano because, um, you know, they, as they got later into their careers, they had, they had families, uh, they had very um, time consuming jobs. And, you know, it's, it's really, a, it's, it's really difficult to uh, do creative work and have a life like that. And so it's certainly understandable why, especially when their children were younger, why, Jack Delano and Phil Hastings um, work fell off in volume. <laughs> uh, and then they, like I said, they both, and this is true of Jack Delano too, uh, as, as 
things freed up in their lives a little bit, they did come back and do more work. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I do, pl I, you know, I do plan, I, I will definitely keep writing. I'm one of the, you know, like many writers, I, um, I'm happiest when I'm writing. I mean, I just, I, you know, I was born to have to write for some reason. And uh, so I do a lot of it, but um, it's, it's harder when you, you know, when you have a full-time career and a family and so on. Yeah. yeah Lucius no, BB had it the best of any of the people I mentioned because A, he he was very wealthy. So actually he didn't have to work if he didn't want to. And then B, well, the three things. B, um, he actually, he made so much from his writing and photography, he could have made a living that way anyway. I would submit that he he was in a certain time period where you were able to do that and that that is mostly no longer the case. And then C, his life partner, Charles Clegg was also uh, was a great real was a great photographer who was also interested in real subjects and was also wealthy, and so uh, he he um, he made a living doing this and and did it with his partner who was also very skilled in photography and they even though they made a living at this if they if if they didn't write books they still would have had money to live on so. That's a very different story than uh, the other three I've written about. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, what do you what do you hope that listeners and readers get away or take away from your book? Well, I think um, first of all, it's it's it is it is literally the first book to put all of Phil Hastings' black and white work in one place. There've been a few books, but they they all focus specifically on his work on a certain railroad. And so I, one of my intents and the publisher intents in doing this book was to give people in one place a high quality curated view of this photographer's entire scope of black and white work. And so I hope people come away with a new appreciation of his work. Second, and this I have, I'm very delighted to say, I have seen this happen with Lucy's Beebe and Charles Clegg to some extent, I, I hope it leads people to look back at Phil Hastings and remember him and look at um, his influence on folks that have come beyond him. And I'd say, as I said earlier, but I'll reinforce, I think one of the uh, places where he's had the most influence was in night photography in general and railroad subject night photography specifically. And then second, along with Charles Clegg, just really broadening out our view of the railroad to include the entire scene and not just the locomotives. I mean, even today, you know, railroad photography, I think it's fair to say is dominated by <laughs> views of locomotives, but that's, you know, that's just a small part of what the industry is and what its influence on our nation and Canada as well was. Um, and then this is also the first this is also the first place where um a fairly long biographic sketch of phil hastings is available and i you know i hope that that uh gives people a better understanding of his work and also provides them with information if they want to learn more about him and his contemporaries you know it's all indexed it's all uh cited it's all there's an extensive 
bibliography. I, it, it gives them, unlike many real enthusiast books, this one has all those things. And so it, anybody who reads it and wants to learn more about him and his contemporaries that can find ways from this book to do that. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. It looks like um, June 6th is the date I'm seeing for the official release. Does that sound right? Well, so good news. Uh, I just finished. So the book was actually released um, earlier than we thought it would be. It was um, early last week. And um, I got my author's copy, I think it was last Tuesday, and I just finished it on Friday. Um, so it's already out. And um, it, I know that it's it's being delivered to people who just bought it because a friend of mine uh, already has it, uh, who, you know, who bought it. So you can get it uh, from the publisher. You can get it, of course, from Amazon uh, and, and then other places like Ron's Books, which is one of the biggest um, retail sellers of railroad subject books has it. So it's out there. And, uh, you know, I hope you'll, I hope everyone will take a look at it. And if they like it, choose to choose to buy it. And uh, one of the last things I need to do to kind of close this project off is send out the complimentary copies. And so I owe several to your museum and I'll be sending those out soon. So um, it's it's available and easily available for people if they'd like to uh, to buy it. Great. We'll go ahead and put links to, um, to all that in the description of this podcast as well, as well for our listeners. Um, congratulations on getting it all out. I'm sure that's just got to be the best feeling in the world to be able to wrap up the project, all that work that you've put into it. I'm, I'm very excited and I'm, I'm looking forward to uh, Claire Phillips, particularly in their staff uh, who helped with the book. I'm looking forward to her seeing it since she, she did so much on the, the scans um that are featured in the book again uh thank you to the california state railroad museum library and archives this this book was drawn from photos that you hold and and documents that you hold this book and the book on lucy's bb and charles clegg would not have been possible without the museum and its wonderful staff so a great thank you um well thanks again for coming on the podcast and if you have another i know you said you're working on another uh, railroad photography book at some point, um, so so I'm sure you're going to take a couple of, of I was going to say time that, to relax and all that three four years at least. So it's, <laughs> it's not like that's going to be happening tomorrow. But yeah, yeah I haven't sure. even I haven't even sold that book yet. So, uh, <laughs> but yeah, in the in the uh, fullness of time, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> in you. the distant future, when when you get around to that, um, let us know, and I'm sure we'll be able to to partner again. Thank you all for listening to this week's episode of Roundhouse Crosstalk, a podcast hosted by the California State Railroad Museum. Thank you to Tony Reby for coming back on the podcast to discuss his new book, and the link to that new book is in the description. We encourage all of our listeners to go and check it out. If you enjoyed today's podcast, make sure you give us a review and subscribe. We'll see you next time.